Hello and welcome back to the weekly Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I am joined today by Simon Elliott, Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. Simon, tell us, first of all, what's been going on in the investment trust sector this week? How has the sector performed against the market? Well, it was a better week this week for the investment company sector. The index of investment companies, the largest investment companies will probably end up around about 3% for the week, which after last week, which was a tough week, particularly last few days of last week, uh, comes as something of a relief. Uh, though it's fair to say that the investment companies index has actually lagged the FTSE all share this week. That uh, ended up about 4% or so. So actually quite a good week for UK investors. The sector average discount, uh, which has widened out a little bit over the last few weeks, um, we find it around about 7% at the moment. It, it was only about a month or so ago in a range between 5 and 6. So a little bit of uh, discount weakness creeping in. Some of the UK names in particular have been uh, derated over the last month. So last week and the week before, we were sort of exercised by what's been going on in the, particularly in the US market and the uh, the tech sector. But that seems to have stabilised a little bit. They've been quite positive, I think, this week in the tech sector compared to where it was before. So we're still not sure whether that was just a, uh, a reaction to an overbought condition or whether it was something more of more permanent significance. Let's move on and talk about some of the announcements in the context of that overall as you say, market uh, movement this week. Let's start with one of the so-called flexible investment sector trusts, quite a well-known one called Ruffa Investment Company. Ruffa, R-I-C-A for short, has a distinctive approach in these markets. Uh, What have they been saying and how were their results in the period in question? So they published their annual results to the 12 months to the end of June. And actually, it was a strong period for Ruffa. Their NEV total return was up 10% during that time. And their share price total return was actually up 12%. Um, and that's a, a pretty decent set of results, particularly given the market conditions we had earlier this year. And that's very much what this investment trust tries to do. It's, it's looking for consistent positive returns and it tries not to lose money over any given 12-month period, and that's pretty much what they've uh, achieved this time round. So they invest in a whole range of asset classes, and a number performed well for it. So gold, uh, unsurprisingly, did well. Credit protection, option protection, uh, that proved pretty positive, as did their exposure to index-linked bonds. And again, unsurprisingly, their exposure to equities, which is probably about uh, somewhere between 20 and 30% of the portfolio, that was a detractor. Uh, in this particular period, not least because actually their equity book is focused on more value and cyclical names, including UK banks. But um, as the chairman pointed out in the statement, the annual results, you know, they now have developed a track record of protecting shareholders' capital. They did in 2008-9 during the uh, the financial crisis then. And if you look back uh, longer through history, rougher as a firm, Uh, managed to steer its way through the sell-off post the tech boom as well. So they have established uh, their investment approach as an all-weather strategy. Yes, I think it's remained to point out that they did come in for quite a lot of criticism over the last few years, because inevitably that means if you adopt this kind of ultra-defensive or relative defensive approach, which they do, they're trying to minimise drawdowns in uh, bad market conditions, that they will tend to underperform in the markets that are going well. And of course, we have had a long bull market and they have underperformed you know, quite significantly until this last 12 months. And when the defensive uh, measures, the kind of securities they buy to protect them against the market fall, finally prove their worth. So it's uh, it's good to see. I'm sure their shareholders will be, uh, after a, a rocky period, will be very glad to see that their 
uh, approach has been vindicated to uh, to some extent in the market sell-off. Very interesting company. Jonathan Ruffer, the chairman, is a very interesting character and always worth listening to. His quarterly reviews are, should we say, uh, there aren't anything quite like them anyway. Well worth a read if you'll enjoy good writing as well as uh, interesting perspective. Okay, so Ruff has done uh, pretty well in that particular sector over the period in question. Let's move on and talk about a trust called Henderson High Income. We used to have quite a few so-called high income funds and trusts to look at, but uh, this is one of the few that still has it in its name, I believe. Tell us about Henderson High Income and what they do and uh, how their strategy has played out in the recent period. So Henderson High Income, managed by a chap called David Smith, invests in equities and also has some uh, fixed income as well. About 12% of its assets are uh, invested in fixed income, which enables it to pay a higher dividend than if it were just purely exposed to equities. This company had its interim results out to the end of June, so the six-month period, the first six months of this year. And it's fair to say it was a tough period. The NAV total return was down 18%, and that compares... Uh, with the benchmark, which was down 13%. And actually, the share price was even worse than the NAV. It was down 22% because basically it was derated. It went from a 1% premium at the start of the year to a 4% discount. And the key factor here is gearing. This is an investment trust company that deploys a reasonable amount of gearing. It was 23% geared at the end of July, for instance, although obviously some of that is offset into the, the fixed income portfolio but it made performance difficult this year. They have actually reduced the gearing down a little bit and uh, sought to improve the quality of their their equity portfolio. The good news is, though, that they are still anticipating um, some dividend growth. They're looking at orbit at 1%, and they're looking to use their revenue reserves uh, in order to do that. Um, And the yield at the moment is above 7%, 7 7.4%. So that's that's the pickup that you get through the yield there. So... That is pretty high in the in the sector in which it's it's placed. Well, which sector is it in, and, and what are the sort of best comparators to that uh, particular trust, given that it does both uh, equities and other things? We classify in the UK equity and bond income subsector. I think it's fair to say the AIC may have it in a different sector. And you know, to your point, there aren't that many investment trusts who actually are have a hybrid strategy, invest in bonds uh, and equities. You know, British and American and Shah's income are probably two names that, that do to a greater or lesser extent. But it is a relatively rare mandate uh, these days. But um, clearly for people looking for yield, it does hold its attractions and has averaged uh, a reasonable rating. Over the last 12 months, it's averaged a 5% discount, though has has been derated uh, and it's probably nearer to 10 11% at the moment. Do you think that implies that that dividend yield might be in question or can they sustain that? I think it will come down to, I mean, they've said they're going to use their revenue reserves in the short term and they're looking to uh, increase their, their dividend. I think just as a general point, we've seen this with a number of UK equity income names and even some of the global equity income names, how sustainable are dividends. I think revenue reserves are very, very helpful in prolonging or buying time effectively for uh, the board of directors of these investment trust companies. Um, use revenue reserves to shore up the dividends, certainly in the short to medium term, and see what the level of recovery is like. Um, I think if we get into 2021 uh, and uh, the dividend payouts are still quite low, then I think that's going to lead to some quite hard decision making. Let's move on then to another reasonably popular investment trust in a different sector, which is Standard Life Smaller Companies Investment Trust, managed by Harry Nimmo, who is a very experienced manager. They've had some results out, I think. What's been their uh, performance like? 
Their performance has been good. Um, so they had their annual results to the 30th of June again, so that 12-month period. Actually, in that time, their NEV total return was down just very slightly, down half a percent, but that compared with an 11% decline for their benchmark, which is the NCSC plus AMX Investment Companies Index, bit of a mouthful, but it's still a very credible set of results. And over the long term, over their over the five years, they'll be certainly one of the stronger UK smaller companies focused investment trust, their NAV to return up 74% over a five-year period. Uh, and that compares well with their with their peer group. So um, you know, decent long-term track record, or very strong long-term track record, decent set of results. And actually interesting hearing the manager's comments. So Harry Nimmo, you mentioned him uh, by any stretch of the imagination, a veteran fund manager. He's been doing this uh, for a long time now. And, uh, you know, he is feeling a lot more confident about the prospects for smaller companies. He believes that the worst has passed in stock market terms, though, obviously, he said we can certainly see periods of volatility uh, going forward. And actually, for those people interested in names in the in the UK smaller company space, it's worth um, having to look down Harry's list of names that he's been buying recently. Um, some interesting kind of growth prospects uh, that people would be familiar with, such as Games Workshop and Team 17, but also those kind of more quality small cap companies like Hilton Foods and, and Cranswick, and buying companies like Greg's and Boohoo Group. Um, so very interesting names in his portfolio. And as I said, the long-term track record is, is uh, very strong. Well, by chance, I happened to be uh, speaking to Harry the other day, and he uh, reminded me, which I had forgotten, that uh, when they took over this trust in, uh, I think it was 2003 or 2005, something a few quite long years ago anyway, uh, had a vote with the shareholders whether to continue or not, and it only passed by 52-48, I think, at the time, by a very narrow margin. And uh, at one point, the trust was so small that it was uh, only 28 million in assets. And I think now it's up to 400 or 500 or something. So it does show that with a, with a bit of luck and uh, with a combination of they, they've done a couple of mergers with other trusts uh, and strong performance, you can come back from the dead or the near dead, if you like, if you've got a, a tailwind and a, and a bit of good fortune. So that trust could have disappeared altogether, but it's turned out to be a, a very great success, which I think is quite an interesting perspective when we hear uh, people talking about uh, the size of trust you need in order to be viable in a longer term period. So that's an interesting one to look at. As you say, I think I'll certainly look at the list of stocks he's been adding to. There's a sort of sister fund or a related fund called uh, Aberdeen Smaller Companies Income. That's also part of the Aberdeen Standard Life Stable. And is it the same team or is it a different team? No, the same team. So a lady called Abby Glennie is responsible for this fund. She works very closely with Harry. Um, it has a different mandate, as the name would suggest. So it's looking for income from uh, smaller companies. But again, actually, its performance has been pretty decent, um, certainly over, over the long term, clearly a more difficult year this year. It's got a little bit of exposure to fixed income uh, names, about 3% or so, but it still shares the emphasis on, on quality companies in the smaller company space. Um, the yield at the moment is about 3.2%. I mean, it's fair to say you will find higher yields elsewhere, but for people who want exposure to smaller companies and have a, um, a decent dividend as well, I suppose that is the, the attraction. And it's actually trading on um, a bit of a wider discount. So Standard Life UK smaller companies, uh, which is Harry's vehicles, on about a 5% discount at the moment, uh, whereas Aberdeen smaller companies' income is trading probably nearer to about 18% discount. However, it's fair to say that the latter is considerably smaller, about a market cap of uh, 60 million. And as you say, Harry's fund now is over 500, 540 million or so. Yes, I thought the other thing is interesting about her comments were that, I mean, she had some interesting things to say about the economic uh 
outlook after the impact of the pandemic. And I think it was fair to say she was uh, a bit more optimistic than she had been earlier back in March when the pandemic crisis was uh, coming very much into focus. But she's particularly exercised about unemployment. No, I think that's right. And I think that's something that's coming through when we're talking to managers, particularly in the UK small cap side. I think they're very conscious that the furlough scheme has effectively kicked the can down the road in terms of, uh, of unemployment. And they're quite concerned that when we do get to the end of that scheme, the impact that it will have not just on businesses, but in terms of the wider economy. And for those more economically sensitive companies, it could have a considerable impact. So I think people can make best guesses and, and assumptions, but I think there is this fear that there is uh, something nasty in store to come, and, and not least for, clearly for those people who clearly may find themselves out of a job or, in the next few months or so. Yes, and that's interesting because, you know, clearly in the political sphere, we've seen that there is this uh, contrast being painted between the performance of the stock market and the performance of the economy. And if, for example, she was right and the kind of unemployment levels she was talking about, she was, I think, talking about UK PLC, if you like, uh, companies uh, getting rid of about 10% of their workforce, that would bring into uh, high relief, if you like, this contrast between what's happening in what they say in America, between Wall Street and Main Street, in other words, between the financial sector and, uh, if you like, the real world out there, the real economy. So that was interesting. I think that might have political implications if she's right about that. Obviously, there is this big question about unemployment and what's going to happen with the furlough scheme. So that is a big question mark about the economic future. Let's also quickly mention in that context another trust which is completely different. Let's talk about something which is not in the UK, BlackRock Latin America. A very different uh, beast and uh, had a very different experience as well, I think. Yes, so BlackRock Latin American Investment Trust had its uh, interim results out this week to the 30th of June, so that six-month period, the first half of the year. And it's fair to say that it was a pretty tough period. The NAV total return was down 38%. That compares with a fall of 35% for the benchmark. The share price, not quite as bad, just down 33%. And the discount, <laughs> as the discount narrowed a little bit, but yet a very tough period, clearly. I mean, the board noted that the period of recovery is hugely unpredictable and the economies that make up Latin America are unlikely to return to their pre-crisis level of GDP until at least 2021. So, I mean, bearing in mind that Brazil represents about 70% of this investment trust portfolio. And as I'm sure most people will appreciate, Brazil has been hit very, very hard by the coronavirus. In addition to which, uh, it is very sensitive to the oil price. A number of large oil companies uh, make up the index and indeed will be in the portfolio of this fund. So yeah, very tough period as well. Um, they've got a bit of gearing as well, 9% gearing, which which probably hasn't helped too much during this time. Yes, it's been tough. I mean, there are only a few... Uh... JP Morgan has a Brazilian fund, I think, and Aberdeen has a, some kind of Latin American fund. And they've all been obviously struggling quite badly because of the factors you've just described. What about a different part of the, uh, the world, other side of the world, Schroeder Asian Total Return? What can you tell us about that? Schroeder Asian Total Return, um, they have their interim results out uh, this week. Again, the same period to the 30th of June, that's six months. Uh, but a very different story here. Their NEV Total Return uh, was positive. It was up 6% during that time, and that represented an outperformance of their benchmark, uh, which was up about 1%. Now, this vehicle is run by uh, two gentlemen, Robin Parbrook and Lee King Fui, who at one time were based out in the region. I think Robin's now based back in the, in the UK, but they're hugely experienced uh, investors. The portfolio is essentially driven by 
their stock selection, which has been strong in this period, hence the outperformance. But they also use portfolio protection, which is something that we talked about before. So when they believe that uh, valuations are uh, got a little bit ahead of themselves or they have particular concerns about a country or a region within Asia, uh, they're quite happy and they do use uh, portfolio protection. So again, you mentioned about reading what people have to say. For those people who are looking to invest in Asia or may have existing investments, certainly worth reading the, the, the fund manager's report on this one. They make uh, some very good points about how they operated through this period. They had a bit of portfolio protection in, in the first quarter of this year and then actually took that off and increased the gearing uh, towards the end of March, which worked for them. But actually in the here and now, they're reducing the, the gearing back down and they're adding more portfolio protection and they've grown more cautious. They believe that there is what they call frothy markets in China uh, and they believe that certain sectors are actually in bubble territory and they highlight biotech things like electric vehicles, related stocks, internet and tech companies. And obviously, these are the ones that performed incredibly well this year, and they have concerns over those valuations. So as I said, for those people interested in that part of the world, it's it's worth reading their comments. Well, let's move again to another part of the, uh, the investment trust sector. We're emphasizing this week, I think, how diverse the sector is in terms of the kind of trust that we're looking at. We've got a few more results before we look at some interesting corporate developments. Let's go to a trust called Oakley Capital. What can you tell us about them? They are a specialist trust. Tell us what they do and uh, what's distinctive about them and how they've been performing. So Oakley Capital Investments, effectively they're a private equity fund. They had their interim results out to the end of June uh, the year. So again, that six-month period. In NAV terms, a pretty decent set of results. Their NAV total return was up 4%. However, their share price total return was actually negative 19%. Uh, and that explains why they're actually trading on quite a wide discount at the moment, probably around 30% or so. So um, a tough period for, for shareholders, clearly. Uh, sh- share price is ultimately uh, what determines the value of your holding. But it is an interesting story. They are a private equity uh, outfit, but they are focused on digitally focused businesses. And they invest particularly in the technology, uh, education and, and consumer sectors. Um, they've certainly had some successes with, within that, including uh, a German higher education provider called Career Partner Group, which seems to be going well. Uh, and they've also sold down uh, a company called Inspired, another uh, education provider of private schools around the world. However, they do have a holding in Timeout. I'm sure people are familiar with, with Timeout from many years ago. It's a listed company now, um, but unfortunately, its share price is down 74% year to date, clearly. Uh, in a coronavirus, in a lockdown environment, quite a difficult business to run. They're quite involved in, in live events now, as well as their digital offerings. So a tough backdrop for them. But uh, the interesting thing is that uh, 38% of net assets uh, are sitting in cash at the period end. Uh, they do have some outstanding commitments to the Oakley funds to which they invest through. But yeah, for a fund with sitting on quite so much cash to see it on a 30% discount is um, possibly a little unusual. Indeed. How do they, those shares have been trading over time? I mean, they, they're in a sector which is trading at uh, relatively large uh, discounts anyway, or at least to the published NAVs. As we said before, with uh, private equity firms, you don't always find out about the NAVs only get valued at uh, somewhat much longer periods, intervals, if you like, and uh, only come out uh, two or three months after the end of the period. So how are they trading relative to other trust in that particular sector, which they might be compared with. So it's fair to say that uh, Oakley has traded a wider discount than a number of its private equity peers. That probably reflects a number of different factors. But that's saying that they had been 
re-rated. They're trying to develop a much higher profile and that had seen their discount narrow for a period of time. But clearly, a very difficult year for private equity in general this year. Many, many names have been derated and, and Oakley have probably faltered as a result of that. But over the last 12 months, it's fair to say they have uh, averaged about a 30% discount or so. So they're not out of line with their average discount over the last year or so. So as you say, private equity is a very interesting sector. But there's another sector which has got obviously different characteristics. Let's talk about international public partnerships. They are basically an infrastructure trust. How have they been rating? How have they been performing? And how have their rating in that sector compared to the private equity sector? So international public partnerships, um, they had interim results out to the 30th of June. Their NAV was just down very, very slightly, probably about a penny or so. But actually, they paid a, a dividend in the period. So they had a, a, a positive total return. In fact, their dividend uh, was up 2.5% and it was 1.3 times covered. Possibly, and more importantly, going forward, they've reaffirmed their dividend guidance for their financial year this year and next year. So that's all positive. Um, there's been a relatively limited impact from COVID-19. And as you correctly say, they are an infrastructure fund. However, there are a couple of holdings within the portfolio that are seeing some impact. Um, so, for instance, they're involved with um, something called the Diablo Rail Link, which has seen a decrease in the number of uh, passengers through this period for um, obvious reasons. Uh, and so that's going to impact on the distributions that the fund will receive. So that's something that I think uh, holders of that particular fund will, will keep an eye on. But it's fair to say that the the premium rating on this particular fund still remains strong, probably about 10 or 11% premium rating. And the dividend, certainly on a historic basis, they're yielding about 4.5%. So um, one, I'm sure shareholders will be keeping an eye on, but at the same time, it does not seem to have uh, impacted its, its rating at the moment. I suppose this only underlines the point that we keep on making that even within sectors, you need to look quite closely at what the individual trusts are doing, because certainly in some of these alternative asset areas, uh, there are people doing quite different things, or at least very different things. Same is true in uh, private equity, where you have some of them are fund of funds, some of them are directly investing in companies and so on. So you really do have to do your homework to look into the particular business that these trusts are doing. Now then, we can't let a week go by without talking about hypnosis, the music royalty investment trust, which has been firing out press releases like a machine gun in the last few days and weeks. <laughs> what have they been up to this week? They actually had a what's called a capital markets day when they when they talk to investors about where they are and, and, and what they're doing. So there's quite a lot of news there, I think. What have they been adding to the sum of, uh, of wisdom this week? Gosh, as you say, a very busy week for hypnosis. They've made some appointments to their executive team. They've, they've managed to attracting some very experienced music professionals. Uh, and that's a quite an important part of the of the hypnosis story. It's not just about acquiring these music catalogues and just sitting back and clipping the coupons. It's very much about trying to promote these songs and um, I suspect what some people would call sweat the assets, so develop a higher profile for the catalogues that they've acquired and by that obviously generate stronger returns for uh, investors. So as part of that story, they have hired a couple of high profile executives in addition to that, they've announced that uh, there are about 82% of their C-share. They raised quite a bit of money, over £200 million back in July. That's 82% uh, invested already. And so that will be converted into the ordinary share class probably in December. And they've increased their dividend target from 5p to 5.25p. So uh, that's good news, a dividend actually going up. 
And they've done a deal with an outfit called Big Deal Music, um, which is a full-service song company. They own a portfolio in their own right of um, over 4,000 songs. And so this is all kind of growing weight to Hypnosis Songs itself. It broadens out their catalogue and provides them with some in-house US administration as well. Finally, they've announced uh, yet another acquisition, this time the music catalogue of Chrissy Hind of The Pretenders, obviously a very high-profile singer-songwriter, and uh, yeah, 164 songs in her catalogue. I'm sure a number of them uh, that you will know very well. Uh, Don't get me wrong, I do know some of them, yes, absolutely. I think the point about song is interesting, I mean, because if you read their prospectus, if you like, and you hear the, uh, the proposition that the founder and uh, promoter of this trust has put to the market, if you like. It's very much in two parts. On the one hand, he's saying, we can acquire these interesting catalogues. Not only do they have some intrinsic value, but we can make more money out of them. And at the same time, he's going to the musicians and the songwriters and saying the same thing. In other words, not only will we pay you a capital sum for the catalogue that you've already produced, but we will actually make sure that we go out and sell it to the world. So you get more return. They will get more return. And if they get more return, then the shareholders in the trust will also get more return. We haven't actually seen the result of that yet because they haven't been going long enough to to demonstrate that. Uh, But they've certainly been very convincing in terms of raising money from investors and indeed from signing up uh, new artists and songwriters, as you say. So it's certainly been a very uh, interesting uh, development and one, I think, which is well worth following. That was Song, Hypnosis. There's been some interesting things on the corporate side in the market in the last uh, few days. We actually had another IPO, uh, initial public offering, uh, has been announced, uh, and it's a somewhat unusual one, I think. So it's a company called Home REIT. They've uh, announced an intention to launch their IPO. They're looking to raise $250 million via a placing and offer a subscription and intermediaries offer. And they are looking to uh, raise capital to invest in a diversified portfolio of UK assets dedicated to providing accommodation to the homeless. So it's an interesting investment case. These assets will be pre-let on a very long-term basis, 20 to 30 years, inflation-linked leases. And these uh, are to registered charities and housing associations uh, and organisations of that type. They're talking about uh, targeting a minimum dividend of 5.5p starting from September next year, uh, with the potential to grow given the upward-only inflation-protected long-term lease agreements. So the targeted return over the medium term is 7.5%. So an interesting prospect, um, clearly uh, with people looking for yield and that kind of return profile, um, there will be interest. But in addition to which, I suspect the angle here is that this could be seen as part of responsible capitalism, providing money for good causes where the users of this accommodation will, will clearly benefit as will investors as well. Yes, I suppose the only question there is, if I can put it bluntly, the sort of credit worthiness of the people who are acquiring these or building these uh, homeless units and so on. I guess there might be an issue over that if you're a charity or a housing association, there must be some questions over that. But in terms of the uh, objective, it's it's very hard to be critical about it. And let's hope that it gets uh, well supported. So that's an IPO. There have been some other interesting corporate things going on. Let's talk, first of all, about a trust called Invesco Income and Growth that had a continuation vote. But it's been a slightly unusual story there, I think. So that's right. They had a continuation vote this week at their annual general meeting, which they passed. uh, But actually, nearly 21% of the shares voted were against continuation. So that's quite a substantial level. 
Uh, and in fact, to the point the board will have to engage now with shareholders in order to consider the options and to determine what action to take, if any. It's fair to say that the board did instigate this continuation vote. I think they recognised that the discount on this particular fund had been wide despite their best efforts. It still remains uh, relatively wide, about 11% uh, at the moment, which is wider than the average for its peer group, probably about 7% at the moment. So this was one of the ways that the board uh, sought to address this. It's part of the Invesco stable, as its name would suggest. It's managed and has been for a number of years by a chap called Kieran Mallon. And its performance record, well, it's fair to say it has struggled for a period of time now. Um, and I suspect that will be uh, an issue for shareholders as much as the um, the discount level. So again, you know, could you see potential corporate action for this investment trust going forward? It certainly wouldn't be an impossibility. And as I said, they, there will be further continuation votes held at a two yearly uh, interval. So the board seems to be you know, doing the right thing, thinking about the future of the trust. But I think I read, I mean, it's a startling figure that the turnout for the actual vote was actually very low. It wasn't even 50%. So more than half the shareholders didn't actually bother to even to, to say whether they wanted to go on or not. And if that's the case, though 20% of the vote was against it, it may be quite a small minority, I guess you could say. But it is slightly surprising, rather shocking, actually. That you, and if the board is trying to decide whether or not to go on, but the shareholders can't be bothered to turn out and vote on whether the thing is a good idea or not, that does rather suggest that uh, you're liable not to get what you wish for, if you like, and you will just stagger on and uh, may not even notice that you had a chance to uh, do something about the performance of the trust. Have you sort of seen those kind of turnout figures before, Simon? Is that usual or uncommon? Yeah, it's a really good point, actually, because it is becoming a growing feature, particularly where investment trust companies have a very high proportion of the shareholder register in the hands of retail investors held across platforms. And actually, in those particular instances, it can be quite difficult for shareholders to vote. And so you can find sometimes a relatively uh, small number of institutional shareholders who do tend to vote. Uh, in these instances, can hold sway. I think it's a problem that a number of investment trust boards are, are particularly concerned about. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, the IOC actually on its website has an interesting page where you can look up which uh, platforms do allow you to vote in these things. I think the issue is also about whether or not you people hear about it or not. I mean, the platforms are meant to notify shareholders of significant corporate developments for their holdings. But there's one of two possibilities. Either the message isn't getting through or the message is getting through and the and the shareholders aren't really you know, bother doing anything about it. Maybe inertia is a vote for continuation, I suppose. But it's interesting, and that's something that I think we might uh, we might look into again in the future. It's an interesting aspect of that particular situation. Let's talk about another situation where we get into issues concerning governance of investment trusts. We keep saying that governance is one of the key strengths of the investment trust sector, and indeed it is. We have AGMs where shareholders get the chance to vote on resolutions uh, from the boards. There's been one at, uh, at Witten, and uh, an interesting thing about the directors of the board of uh, Witten, there's been an interesting development there. So tell us about that, if you can, Simon. So we had the AGM for Witten uh, this week, and a number of the directors uh, stood for re-election, as you would expect to see in most uh, investment trust AGMs. But actually 21% of the votes were, were cast against the re-election of uh, Tony Watson, who uh, is a long-standing uh, director of Witten Investment Trust. He's been on the board since 2006. And apparently the, the vote was on the basis he was not deemed to be independent due to his length of service. I mean, the board had previously said in this particular case that he would retire at the AGM in 
2021. In fact, there were a number of uh, changes to Witten's board. At the start of the year, I think there were four directors on that particular board who said over nine years, which is the recommended length of time, before a non-executive director is deemed to no longer be independent. But the board had uh, looked to defer his retirement, Tony Watson's retirement, until 2021 due to circumstances. So again, it's one of the features that we are starting to see more of with AGMs that often there are um, quite influential, quite powerful proxy agencies who will uh, red top or they will basically advise uh, institutional investors how to vote in particular instances. And they can take quite a black and white approach in terms of their recommendations. So if the code is not being adhered to strictly, so for instance, a director has been on a board apparently for too long, um, they will recommend a vote against them, uh, even though there might be um, very important mitigating circumstances why that would be a bad outcome. But it is something that we're starting to see uh, a lot more of. And I think though we would generally welcome uh, the improvement in, in corporate governance, I think we'd all say that that's probably a good thing, that we are, we are quite wary that sometimes certainly the proxy agencies, those providing recommendations to institutional shareholders can take a very hard line on some of these issues. Yes, I think it's a very interesting and indeed rather more complicated issue than uh, perhaps some of these uh, institutional uh, proxy agents actually come out with. I mean, it is important that uh, boards are refreshed at regular intervals. I think that's very clear. But of course, it does all depend on the trust. It depends whether it's self-managed or, I mean, you wouldn't have wanted to... uh, ask uh, Jacob Rothschild to stand down from uh, RHE since it was basically, you know, his investment trust that he started and where he still has the largest shareholder and so on. And as a most alignment of interest, he has stood down out because he's retired. But it's a complicated issue. And uh, as you say, this this sort of rather arbitrary rule of nine years, I suppose, does introduce some discipline into the process. But uh, quite a few boards do actually say that in certain cases, they're willing to have directors continue beyond that uh, particular point. So... That is that issue, which is, uh, as you say, becoming increasingly important. I think that's bring us to the end uh, this week. We just might quickly mention um, performance. We, we think from now on, in addition to just talking about the market overall, how it's performed, we might from time to time look at the performance of individual trusts and individual sectors, how they've done over different periods of time, because clearly there has been a significant movement uh, up and down this year. So is there anything we can sort of pick out in the last week or last month? Is there any kind of theme running through which trusts have done well and which ones have done badly or any, any names you'd pick out as having uh, either performed very well or performed less well? I, I think certainly over the last week, one of the notable features has been how well some of the European names have done. Names at Henderson European Focus, TR European Growth, um, European Opportunities. They've all seen, into NAV terms at least, uh, a rise of about 5 five to 6% in terms of how they performed. I mean, I think it's fair to say Europe uh, has been out of favour with investors for a period of time. Um, and a lot of people would say that there is value in European equities. And certainly they've enjoyed the movement over the last week or so. And um, some of the commodity names as well have enjoyed uh, a bit of a bounce. BlackRock World Mining, NAV performance, again, run about 5% or so. Uh, and that's an investment trust that's trading on quite a wide discount uh, at the moment. And I think, uh, again, over the last week, those that have struggled a little bit Again, there's a kind of bit of a mixed bag. I think some of those names uh, exposed to particular technology names, so um, Bailey Gifford, US Growth, to a slightly lesser extent, Scottish Mortgage uh, Investment Trust, just over those last week or so, they would have been hit by the, the performance of names such as uh, Tesla uh, and some of those other technology names as well. 
Yeah. So in the next couple of weeks, anyway, we'll have a look at how investment trusts have performed in the six months since, if you like, the bottom of the market uh, back in March. It will be uh, the six-month anniversary of the low point in the market. Remember that period when the stock market seemed to fall uh, off a cliff, basically, precipitously as the as the news of the lockdowns and the spread of the virus accelerated. So we'll be coming back to look at that. That's always going to be interesting because, as we've said many times, one of the great attractions of the investment trust world is there's a disadvantage. You have to learn to live with discounts uh, and you have to learn to live with a bit more volatility. But by the same token, that does create opportunities when the market falls quite sharply. And there have been a number of uh, trusts, as we'll see, that if you had been brave enough to buy them at the bottom of the market, you would have been making you know 50% of your money, which is not bad going for a six-month period, it has to be said. But you need to have the courage of your convictions. I know, Simon, you have the courage of your convictions, and that's very good. So we'll be looking forward to talking about that next week. And for the meantime, let's see uh, how the market goes next week. Thanks very much. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening, and please keep safe in these difficult times.